Well, we are in Matthew chapter 20, and we will finish up Matthew chapter 20 this morning, beginning in verse 29, and we'll go to verse 34. And just to, if you're new with us, if you're visiting, we have been going through the book of Matthew for a, a couple of years now, and so I will reference some of what we've already studied in Matthew today, and you'll, you'll pick up on that as we go along. I would encourage you to, when you hear those verses or those passages, if you want to go back to them and, and read them on your own later, uh, you're welcome to do that. Also, if you're curious, you can access all of our previous studies, our sermons uh, in the book of Matthew on our website. So you can check those out there. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 to 34. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have brought it through the ages so that we could read it and understand it. And we thank you that this is not a, a dead, dry Bible, but your living word that you speak to us through. So speak to us today, Lord. May what your spirit has inspired Matthew to write and what you have preserved through the ages for us be what we need to hear today and give us years to hear. This is in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the things that, that we all have learned together as we've studied Matthew's gospel is that the placement of various teachings and healings and miracles isn't accidental. It's very much intentional. So just a couple of weeks ago, the the rich man who the disciples thought would get into the kingdom comes right after, in chapter 19, the children who the disciples thought would not be in the kingdom. That's not accidental. Matthew places those incidents right beside one another so we could see the contrast. And then there was that parable about the vineyard that we saw a couple weeks ago, right after Peter's question about his reward. The parable answered his question, and Matthew arranged his gospel so that we would understand it that way. And so one of the questions that, that we've been asking as we go throughout the, the book of Matthew is this, why does this happen here? And so as I was studying this passage this week, I asked that same question, why does this happen here? And the easy answer and the true answer is to say, well, because that's where it happened in history right? And that's true. The, the healing of these blind men that we see in verses 29 and following, they, that healing truly happened 
on the road going up from Jericho towards Jerusalem. And we absolutely need to appreciate the historicity of what has happened here. We need, to, we need to appreciate that what Matthew has recorded for us is true. Our faith as Christians depends on the things in this book being true. But here's the thing. A lot of other things happened in Jesus' ministry. Things that Matthew could have chosen to include in the gospel according to Matthew, but he chose not to include. Just in as, as an example... If we're looking at Jesus' ministry timeline, right about this time, Jesus will be in a town called Bethany. And according to the gospel of, according to John, while Jesus was in Bethany, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, raising one of your closest friends from the dead is a big deal, isn't it? It's not something that you would intentionally leave out of, of a, a history document, and yet Matthew says nothing about it. In Luke's account, in his gospel, this is when Jesus, when we're here in Jericho, is when Jesus meets that wee little man Zacchaeus. And yet Matthew says nothing about that event either. There are a number of cases like this. And so we know we can all know and we can trust that the Spirit has inspired Matthew to at least leave some of Jesus' miracles out of his gospel account. That's why we have four gospels. But why not leave out these two blind men? And here's why I ask that, because Matthew has already shown us a number of times already that Jesus can heal the blind. And through those healing events... We've already seen that Jesus' healing of the blind fulfills what the Old Testament prophesied would happen when Messiah came. Isaiah 35 says the eyes of the blind will be opened in the age of the Messiah. Isaiah 42 says the one who brings the kingdom gives sight to the blind. Psalm 146 says the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And we have seen already throughout this gospel that Jesus has fulfilled each one of these prophecies. Matthew has He's proven to us already that Jesus has brought in the age of the Messiah, the, the kingdom of heaven by healing blind people. So then I ask again, why does he include this healing here in chapter 20? Why not skip ahead to that really exciting triumphal entry, Palm Sunday? What's so important here? And while you're thinking that, let me show you something else that should lead you to ponder this question. Flip back to Matthew chapter 9. Now, if, if you were here in October of 2019, we were in Matthew chapter 9. This is fairly close to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's right before the disciples are sent out to proclaim the arrival of Messiah. And then we have this healing of two blind men. And you're going to see this looks very similar to what we're seeing in chapter 20. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to, him, said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes. 
saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it, but they went away and spread his fame throughout all the, all the district. Now, do you see the similarities between Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 20? You have two blind men in chapter 9, you have two blind men in chapter 20. They cry out for mercy, and they, they say that Jesus is the son of David in chapter 9, and they say the same thing in our text. Jesus touches their eyes and gives them sight in chapter 9, and he does the same thing in our text. And so you've got to think, if you're reading this book in one sitting, or if you're hearing it read to you in one sitting the way that the original listeners of Matthew's gospel would have heard, you're going to remember chapter 9. Because really it was only a few pages ago, or maybe a few minutes ago, if you're hearing it read. And so when you get to chapter 20 you have this deja vu moment. Didn't I just hear this? Didn't we just see this happen? So why the redundancy? Well, before we answer that question, you need to know this. There are two issues having to do with blindness that are taking place in Jesus's ministry. On the one hand, you have physical blindness, and on the other, you have spiritual blindness. The healing of, spirit, of physical blindness is something that Messiah was prophesied to do. And Jesus did that. He really did that. Again and again and again, there are more blind people healed in the Gospels than there are healings of any other physical ailment. But there's also a spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness is the, the Bible's way of talking about unbelief. It is an inability to see with eyes of faith. It's an inability to trust God. And as Jesus arrives on the scene in Israel, this spiritual blindness is more pervasive than any physical blindness ever had been. And in much the same way that the arrival of Messiah was supposed to bring about physical healings, Christ's arrival was also prophesied to bring about spiritual restoration. So, both are there, and Messiah is supposed to be the answer to both. And as we've read Matthew's gospel together, we have seen that some people are given this spiritual sight. We haven't just seen these physical miracles. We've seen spiritual miracles as well. People are given spiritual sight. Some people, by the mercy of God, are given the gift of seeing. They're able to see that this man, Jesus, from Nazareth is the Messiah, and that he's inaugurating the kingdom of heaven. And these seeing people have the privilege of being brought into his kingdom. We saw this in, in Matthew chapter 13. Really important chapter uh, in Matthew's gospel. Probably for me, as I've studied Matthew's gospel, one of those chapters that kind of unfolded the whole book for me. Very key book to, to read and understand, very key chapter in the gospel to, to read and understand. In that chapter, Jesus uses seven parables about the kingdom of heaven to accomplish two different tasks. The first is this. He's trying to teach the disciples about the nature of the kingdom. And the second task, what he's also doing, is obscuring the nature of the kingdom from the unbelieving crowds. 
So there are those who can see the kingdom and to them through the parables, they get a a greater insight into what Jesus is doing. And on the other hand, there are those who cannot see the kingdom. They don't have eyes to see. And through the parables, they're further confused, further blinded. And then Jesus tells the disciples, this this is why I'm including this here, because of what he tells the disciples in Matthew 13. He says to them in verse 16, Blessed are your eyes, for they see. The disciples have been given seeing eyes, spiritual sight. And regarding the Pharisees, he says in Matthew chapter 15, leave them alone, for they are blind. They are blind guides. And then when we get to Matthew chapter 23, he's going to double down on that. He's going to call them blind men, blind guides, blind Pharisees, blind fools. And so as we have read Matthew, there's this ongoing question. How is it that some people are given spiritual sight to see the kingdom? Why do some see when others don't? Well, in the gospel according to John, the answer is really plain. In John chapter 3, he gives the account of when Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus in the night. He wants to know more about who Jesus is. And Jesus tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So in John, in the gospel of John, being born again is prerequisite to being given these spiritual eyes, these eyes of faith. And you might not have noticed this, but Matthew has also been teaching the same thing that John does. In Matthew 16, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God, Jesus tells him that he is able to understand this because the Father has revealed it to him. To follow Jesus, we must be given sight. The kingdom of heaven must be revealed to us. We have to be healed of our spiritual blindness so that we can see that Jesus is our true king, so that we can begin to follow him. Well, our text this morning teaches us this same reality again. But Matthew teaches us this reality of the necessity of seeing eyes, spiritual eyes. He teaches it through the miracle of these two blind men being given sight. They are a a living metaphor Following Jesus, or we could say being a disciple of Jesus, is dependent on our seeing him as he is, the anointed king, our Lord, the promised son of David. And what's more important is that seeing is not something that we accomplish on our own. That seeing is God's mercy toward us. This might be starting to come together for you now as as you think about the passage we read. But the key to understanding our passage this way, you find at the end of this week's passage, look at verse 34, chapter 20, verse 34. And in pity, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. It's a key word. They followed him. Now, that wouldn't be very noteworthy if all of the people that Jesus healed followed Jesus. But these men, these two men, are the only people that Jesus healed who Matthew, healed, who Matthew says followed Jesus. 
after their healing. You can read all of Matthew's gospel. And the only people who Jesus healed and who followed him are these two men. And that's really significant. Nowhere else does Matthew say, and then they followed him. In fact, the only place we see that language is when the disciples follow Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 20, when Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, who are mending their nets, Matthew writes for us, immediately they left their nets and followed him. A couple verses later, when James and John are with their father out on the boat and Jesus calls them to follow him, Jesus, Matthew writes down for us, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Almost exactly what these blind men do. In our text, Matthew says, the blind men immediately recovered their sight and followed him. Their seeing Jesus as Messiah has made them disciples of Jesus. And so what we need to see that Matthew's doing with this miracle is he's showing us that the disciples are supposed to see themselves as blind men whom Jesus has given sight to. But they don't have that understanding. This, this, the context of this miracle that we've just seen happens right after chapter 19, where Peter and the others have begun to think of themselves as something special. Because they were able to do something that that rich young man couldn't do. And then last week, James and John have begun to think of themselves as worthy of sitting at Jesus' left and right side. They've begun to think of themselves as great in the kingdom and deserving of special honor. And this miracle is placed right where it is in Matthew's gospel, right where it is in Jesus' lifetime, to teach us that the disciples were never great to begin with. They were blind beggars who needed God's mercy. And Jesus had mercy on them. He gave them eyes to see, and immediately they followed him. And that's true for you. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, it is because God had mercy on you. He gave you eyes to see King Jesus. Even if you want to follow Jesus, you can't follow him until you're given sight. We are all blind beggars on the roadside, totally dependent on the mercy of God. And all we can do is cry out for help. Lord, have mercy on me. You see, friends, that is the prayer of a kingdom citizen. And the more you come to understand who you really are without Jesus Christ, the louder you will cry out that prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Even if the world, the crowd, begins to tell you that you don't need to have this posture towards Christ, that you should have self-esteem, that, you, that you're beautiful inside and you should be true to yourself, a Christ follower cries out all the louder, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm nothing without you, Lord. Nothing. This is the constant prayer of a Christian the constant prayer of a Christian. And I can promise you, our good God answers this prayer. 
Spirit says in Lamentations, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. So when we cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, the Lord's mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So let me just say, if your soul is dry this morning, if you feel empty, if you feel distant from God, if your faith feels weak, I can guarantee you it is not because you're too humble. It's because you have begun to take confidence in yourself. Become a beggar again. And remember your own nearsightedness. And you don't have to pray out a, a long, drawn-out, deep theological prayer with a bunch of these and thous. All you need to simply pray is, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. Because that is the prayer of faith. If, if, you are, if, you, if you're not a follower of Christ and you're beginning to understand that Jesus is King, you're beginning to understand he is Messiah, that he's Lord, and yet you feel like you can't follow him, this is your prayer too. Lord, have mercy on me. Give me eyes to see. What we're seeing here at the beginning, or at the end of his ministry, is as he had told us it would be from the very beginning. The first sermon preached by Jesus in the book of Matthew began with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're great in your own eyes, the kingdom of heaven is yours. If, if you're great in your own eyes, the kingdom of heaven is, is yours. It's not for you. But if God has revealed to you your spiritual poverty he will also reveal to you the king who makes you whole and he will draw you into his kingdom. The problem is that we forget this, isn't it? We see this again and again and again in scripture and those of us who have been Christians for a while and even new Christians, we hear this and we say, yeah, that's Christianity. That, that's Christianity. I agree with all that you just said. And yet, we forget, don't we? we? We begin up with the privileges that we have been given as Christians in Christ, and we forget that Christ is calling others to himself. And that we used to be right where they are. Let me read for you an illustration from John Newton. You guys know this? Yeah, he, he wrote... He wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton closely identified blind men on the side of the road. You have that line in the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I think John Newton particularly identified with these men. And here's an illustration that he gives uh, about wh where we're going. He says, a company of travelers fall into a pit. One of them gets a passerby to draw him out of the pit. Now, 
he should not be angry with the rest for falling into the pit, nor because they are not yet out as he is. He did not pull himself out. Instead, therefore, of reproaching them, he should show them pity. A man truly illuminated will no more despise others than Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were opened, would take a stick and beat every blind man he met. So so if you read Mark's account of of what we just read in Matthew, Bartimaeus is one of these two blind men. And can you imagine one of these men being healed and then, then going into every town that he can find and beating other blind men with a stick? beating other blind beggars. It sounds absurd, and I think that's the point that Newton wants us to see. And yet, what, what, that's what Matthew's showing us here. You see, there's a connection here in our text to the disciples, not just the connection of, of the blind men. But do you remember a few weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 19, when these parents were bringing all the little kids to Jesus to be blessed by him? Do you remember what the, the disciples did? They rebuked the parents. They rebuked those families for bringing the kids to Jesus. And then Jesus corrected the disciples by commanding them, never, ever, ever hinder children from coming to him because to them belongs the kingdom. And what's happening here? Look at 20, verse 31. These desperate and needy blind men are begging Jesus for mercy. And what happens? The crowds rebuke them for trying to get to Jesus. The crowds rebuke them. So in the same way that this passage is here to show us that the disciples are truly like the blind men, this passage is also meant to show us that they're like the crowds because they had done this very thing. They rebuked those who were attempting to come to Jesus. And it doesn't take long for those of us who are following Jesus to forget about who we were before we came to follow Jesus. And we begin to take Jesus for granted. He's ours. He belongs to us. We have all the, these privileges of being in Christ and we begin to own these privileges as if we earned them. As if we had pulled ourselves up out of the pit on our own. Or as if we had healed our own spiritual blindness. Think about If you're a Christian this morning, think about what you already have in Christ. You have hope. That's an uncommon virtue. What the CDC calls deaths of despair are now at epidemic rates, far more dangerous to young people than this virus, and now worse because of this virus. The life expectancy in our nation has dropped three years because of hopelessness. Hope in our society is rare. But if you're in Christ, by definition, you have hope. Did you earn it? No. It was given to you. In Christ, you already have a church family. Hundreds of brothers and sisters who will support you and instruct you and, and help you stand firm in the faith. People who will love you. People to seek Christ together with. In Christ, already, we're not even in heaven yet, and already you have this, his own body. Did you earn it? No, it was given to you. In Christ, you already have been given spiritual sight. Maybe it's not 2020 vision, 
But when you see him face to face, it will be. You can see enough now to, now to see that Christ is Lord. You can see enough to follow him. And already you've been given ears to hear too. You can hear God in his word when you read the Bible and when you hear it preached. In spiritual sight, in spiritual hearing, those things are not earned, Christians. They're gifts. In Christ already, you have righteousness in him. And your life already is being transformed by the spirit in you as you become more like him. That means that your life compared to who you would be without Jesus, is not a total moral disaster. And that is not to your credit. It's not to my credit. Because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, who God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. There is good that we already have in Christ right now, and we often take credit for it. Here we are following him, basking in the privileges that he's given us. And when we see someone who doesn't have everything together, we wonder, why are, why are they so hopeless? Why are they so sinful? Why can't they understand the plain language of the Bible and just believe it? Why is their life such a wreck? For the disciples, it was children that they didn't want to be associated with. Get them away from Jesus. We don't want to be seen with them. For the crowds following Jesus, it was these blind beggars. But either way, when we begin to think that we have reached some status as Christ's followers, we then begin to determine ourselves who's fit to come to Christ and who isn't who we want in the kingdom with us, and who we don't want in our kingdom. Who would you rather not come to church, to your church? Who would you rather not have in your Bible study with you? Who isn't allowed at your dinner table? Why not? Why not? Are we afraid? Are we afraid of the time commitment that these people will be? Are we bothered by their politics? Are we afraid that they will be an inconvenience to us? Will this person bring trials into your life? The reality is that all those things will be true. Yes, yes, yes. They will bring trials into your life. Yes, they'll be a huge inconvenience to you. Yes, they'll be annoying and time-consuming, and they will definitely be offensive. And yes, you will probably end up disappointed. More than once. But what do we expect from people who are spiritually blind? They are who any of us would be had we not been given sight. And because who we are now in Christ is 100% attributable to God's grace in giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, who are we to even think that someone else is undeserving of hearing the gospel message. Is your motivation for evangelism non-existent? 
Friend, you've probably forgotten that you're a beggar. We need to have the mindset that if Christ has invited us in, then there is no bottom to who gets in. We have absolutely got to understand ourselves individually to be the lowest of the low, the least, the most undeserving in order to have a heart that invites others in. Because if we understand ourselves to be at the bottom, the most undeserving, the lowest of the low, then we can't possibly look down on anyone else, can we? And the more we can understand that that is who we are in Christ, then the greater Christ will be in our lives and the lesser we will be. When it, when it comes to choosing whether or not to be like the crowds in our passage or like the beggars in our passage, we must be like the beggars. Proclaiming Jesus to be the Christ, begging for his mercy daily, receiving our salvation, our healing from him, and then following him to the cross because that is where he's going. And that first instance of the two blind men back in chapter 9, they didn't follow Jesus. They went and spread his fame, but they didn't follow Jesus. And now, as we've seen, we know where Jesus is going. We know he's going to Jerusalem. We know he's going to the cross. And these men who have been given sight, these disciples, these new disciples of Jesus, they are following him to the cross to the place where he will lay down his life for everyone else. So to follow Christ in that way means that we cannot possibly think we're walking towards a throne. We're walking, following Christ, to a place where we are giving ourselves up for the sake of others. That's the Christian way.